you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 6, look at verses 7 through 13. Continuing our series through the book of Mark, this morning in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. How someone sends you out tells you a great deal about how they think about you, how they feel toward you. In 2012, the University of Arkansas fired its head football coach. Bobby Petrino was let go for lying to the university, hiring his mistress to work on his staff, bending the rules in the process, covering up her presence at a motorcycle wreck, and genuinely and generally just being a bad guy. We know exactly why he was fired, because the university released a letter and held a press conference laying out in explicit detail exactly what he had done wrong and why he had to go. The way they sent him out lets you know that they did not like him very much when they fired him. In 2012, the University of Arkansas fired its head football coach. John L. Smith had been the coach for less than a year when he was fired after one of the more disappointing seasons in my lifetime. See, it was so disappointing, evidently, that the school fired its interim head football coach rather than merely letting his contract run out. The way they sent him out lets you know that they didn't like him very much when they fired him. In 2017, the University of Arkansas fired its head football coach. After a disappointing loss on Thanksgiving weekend, the university finally took the step, which had been evident for some time at that point. Everyone knew it was coming. They wanted Brett Bielema gone so badly that they fired their athletic director so that they could fire the head football coach. When they let him go, they did it before he even left the field, before he had even talked to his players after the game. The way they sent him out lets you know that when they fired him, when they sent him out, they didn't like him very much. In 2019, the University of Arkansas fired its head football coach. After an embarrassing, not quite two-year stretch, in which Chad Morris had the worst winning percentage of any head coach in school history, he was let go after uh, less than two seasons with two games left on the schedule for that season. The school wanted him gone so bad after going 0-14 in SEC play that they terminated his contract with a buyout of somewhere around $10 million. They decided they would rather give him $10 million to not be the head football coach anymore than to allow him to continue in his role. The way they sent him out lets you know that they didn't like him very much when they fired him. Luckily for the disciples and for us, They are not the head football coach at the University of Arkansas. When Christ sent them out, he gives them a much better send-off than any of the ones you just heard. We'll be able to see five ways that Christ sends out his followers this morning. First of all, 
The first way that he sends out his disciples is that he sends them out with his authority. Look at verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. They are sent out. They're his disciples. They're generally supposed to be with him, to learn from him, to see him, to grow under him. But he does send them out. They're sent away from him with his authority. That was always Christ's plan for his apostles. In Mark 1.17, when he began to call his disciples to himself, he told them to follow him and he will make them fishers of men. So now, after some time, they've heard him teach, they've seen him work. And while he's still there, while he's still with them, he sends them out to begin his work to which he's called them to. Christ is a good leader. He says, watch me do my work. Now you go out and I'll watch you do the work that I just gave you. And then you come back and I'll teach you how to do so better. He sends out his disciples for this purpose, to make them fishers of men, to make them people who are going to make more disciples. But more than just sending them a partner in the work, which he does give them, he sends them out two by two, he actually gives them some of his own authority over the unclean spirits. They're given his authority as his representatives to the people that they encounter. When they see a disciple, they're meant to see him. When they hear the words coming out of a disciple's mouth, they should understand those words as Jesus speaking to them. Just as when you see Christ, you should see his Father who has sent him, when you see a disciple, you should see Christ who sent them. When Christ sends his disciples, he sends them with his authority, under his care, with his power. But he also sends out his disciples under his provision. That's the second way that Christ sends out his disciples in the text this morning. Under his provision, verse 8, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. They aren't supposed to take anything extra for their journey. Nothing you would think that they would typically need. Nothing they would already have that would be a benefit to them. Nothing you would normally take for a journey like this if you were setting out in your own planning to go out and do it. They're not to rely on what they already possess, their own belongings, their own gifts as they travel because they're under Christ's provision. He doesn't need what they would normally pack for him to do his work through them, so he tells them to just leave it at home. You don't need it. I will provide. Take nothing but a staff, the most basic of necessities, as they're walking from place to place. And it's curious because some of these things that he tells them to leave are things that they would really seem to need, right? No bread? Jesus, you don't want us to take food? How do we eat if there's no food? Oh, that doesn't make any sense. No bag? Well, okay, fine. No bag. You're not letting us take anything else. What do we need a bag for? But that means we can't actually store anything up once we get there. It means that even when you provide food, we can't carry it with us. So we only get what you gave us on that day. We can't store up food for anything more than what we already have. Anything greater than what is provided for us. Well, that means we are day to day on our meals and provisions here. No money? Okay, I get that we might not have to take food or a bag to store up everything. But if we have money, we can buy what we need when we get there. So that just lets us travel light. It lets us move around. It lets us do what we're supposed to do. But if we don't have money, how are we supposed to get any of that? The, the no bag, the no food, that could just be good strategy. But no bag, no food, no money. Jesus, what are you doing to us? 
He's pushing them out of an airplane and telling them that they're going to find a parachute on the way down. He intends to provide for them exactly what they need, exactly when they need it, as they're furthering his ministry and his kingdom. He's asking them to just trust him, that he's not going to let them go hungry. He's not going to let them be impoverished. He's not going to allow them to be without a roof over their head for any extended period of time. He is going to provide for them And he's asking them to trust him as he does so. Because as he is sending them out, he is doing so under his provision. And when he sends them out, he sends them far and wide. That's the third way that Christ sends out his disciples in our text this morning. He sends his disciples far and wide. Look at verse 9. But he does tell them to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So he doesn't tell them to bring most things that we would assume they need. No bread, no bag, no money. But he does say, wear sandals. He doesn't even just allow them to wear sandals. He says, wear sandals. It's not just that they happen to already be wearing sandals and Jesus just overlooked that in the things that he told them not to bring. He says, wear sandals. He tells them to do that. That's a little curious, isn't it? Because surely they were already wearing sandals, right? It's not like they had been walking around with Jesus for the last couple years, and then all of a sudden he said, wait, you guys don't have shoes? Well, as you go, wear sandals. What kind of self-respecting apostles are you guys that you don't have shoes on your feet? A little dignity here, a little class, get some sandals, you're taking out my authority as you go, you need some shoes on your feet. That's not what he's doing. He tells them to wear sandals when they probably already were, But he didn't highlight anything else that they were probably already wearing. He didn't say, don't forget your pants. But he does say to wear sandals. That's strange. Why does he do that? Why tell them specifically to wear sandals? I think Christ is caring for them, even as he's also giving them just a little bit of a warning as he sends them out. He says, wear sandals simply just so your feet don't get hurt. He's loving them as he sends them out. Like the mom who goes to the pool and says, don't forget your sunscreen. We should already know that, right? We're at the pool, we're in the sun, we should wear sunscreen. But she says it anyway. Christ says to wear sandals anyway, even though they should already know it, even though they should already have them on their feet. He loves them, so he doesn't want their feet to get cut. He doesn't want their feet to get hurt. And I get that that might seem like such a small care, such a small provision that he's giving to them, but that's only true for you if you are currently wearing shoes and not walking around in the desert. For someone in that situation, in that time, sandals would have been absolutely essential, okay? Ask John McClain if proper protective footwear matters or not. It does, Ask those guys who try to walk across hot coals if they wish that they were wearing boots. Because they do. Christ says wear sandals simply so that his disciples don't get hurt as they're walking around. He's loving them even in something as simple as saying wear some sandals. But he's also giving them just the tiniest warning there. He says wear some sandals because you're going to need them. 
You're not just going down the street. You're going out. You're going away. This isn't a quick run to the store. This is a journey. This is a trek. They're going far and wide with his authority to do his work. And the road won't be easy. It's not well paved. It's not a gentle terrain. It's not for the faint of heart. If you're not careful, if you're not prepared and protected, if you don't have these sandals on your feet, which you desperately need, you may not make it. Christ is preparing them and providing for them on their journey with his instructions to them as he sends them far and wide. And he continues to prepare them as he gets them ready for rejection, which is the fourth way he sends them in these verses. He sends them prepared for rejection. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. He's going to provide a place for them to stay. And wherever that is, is sufficient for their needs until they leave. They shouldn't be looking for better accommodations the whole time. They should instead just be content with where he has them. He says, don't go somewhere, accept hospitality until you get a better offer. Go somewhere, accept hospitality, and stay there until you leave until you're no no longer there anymore, until you could possibly no longer accept that same hospitality. But he also gives them instructions for what to do if they're rejected. And he does that, obviously, because they will be. He doesn't give them instructions for for what to do when they're rejected because that's outside the realm of possibility. He says, when you are rejected... He's telling them, warning them from day one, look, you're not going to be accepted everywhere you go. He doesn't tell them how to be prepared when someone asks to throw them a parade because that doesn't happen. But he does say when you're rejected, this is what you should do. He tells them how to deal with rejection because people are going to reject them. They're going to reject their message. Even as they are sent out with his authority and under his provision, When they go out far and wide, they are going to be rejected, just as he was. We saw that last week in the beginning of chapter 6, that Jesus was rejected at Nazareth even after astonishing the people with his teaching. That Jesus himself, the God of the universe, went back to his hometown, astonished them with his teaching, and then after hearing that, after seeing him and hearing about what he had been doing, they said, I don't believe it. They rejected him, so he's warning them that the same people are going to reject them. If Christ was rejected, his disciples will also be rejected. We shouldn't be shocked when people reject Christ. We shouldn't be shocked when people reject us, when we are sent out by him. Jesus warns his people that they are going to be rejected. John 15, verses 18 through 20, which should be on the screen behind me says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. He's telling his people, look, You and the world are not the same. You're just not. 
They rejected me, they're going to reject you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they rejected the master, there's no way they are not also rejecting the servant. He's warning us over and over that you are going to be rejected. As you go, as you preach, as you teach, as you share his gospel, under his authority, under his provision, even with all of that going for you, you still are going to be rejected because they rejected Christ. Why would we think any different? I think this element, this understanding, is missing in how we often think about our lives. I think for most of us, we forget that rejection is central. It's almost essential to the Christian faith. We serve a Savior who not only died on a cross, but called his followers to take up our own cross and to follow him all the way to his. He said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. We serve a Savior whose life ended on this earth, on a cross, killed by the people he came to save. We're called to follow him to whatever end, even that same death, that same persecution, we have to count the cost of following Jesus even as we also count the cost of not following Jesus. Because there is a cost. It isn't easy. It won't always be parades and rainbows. What it will be is rejection, hardship, suffering, Hey, ask Ukrainian Christians this week if being faithful to their God might possibly lead to persecution. It will. It does. Why would we think that we should fare any different? Why would we think that our lives should look any different? We have to count the cost of following Jesus even while we count the cost of not following Jesus. That should play into our evangelism a little bit. Look, I I have no problem with someone selling heaven to someone because it's going to be pretty great. That's part of what we should do. It's true. But there's no easy way to heaven. It was procured for you by the death in the flesh of the God of the universe. You take hold of it now by repentance and faith. Repentance in turning away from everything that you held dear before. And faith, the hope, the belief, the trust that when you die, his promises will be true for you. There's no easy way to get there. You have to count the cost. Jesus himself, over and over in his gospels, says, hey, no, 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 this isn't easy. The way's narrow, and few are going to pass through it. Count the cost. Before someone builds a tower, they make sure they have enough money. Before someone goes to war, they make sure they can win. So you count the cost. Think about it. Because the Christian life has a lot more persecution in it than we tend to act like. Has a lot more rejection in it than we tend to act like. You better put on your sandals because the road on which your master has sent you is not an easy one. It's a road that ends at a cross for each of his disciples, just as it did for him. He's warning that they are going to go places where they are rejected. 
that people will not listen to them. Not only will they not receive them, they will not listen to them. The people they encounter won't receive them. There are going to be places where there's nowhere for them to stay, no hospitality which greets them. The people there won't even listen to the disciples' message. So forget accepting the message, forget becoming disciples, forget receiving the message or receiving the disciples who send that message. They aren't even going to give them the time of day. He's warning them over and over and over again. Rejection is coming, be ready. People will not receive you or listen to you. And he tells them what to do when that happens. He says, when that happens, move on. Leave. He doesn't say to stop proclaiming his message. He tells them to leave. He says, go where you're received. Go where you're welcome. Go where the fruit is. When you do what you're supposed to do, as I have called you to do, as I have commanded you to do, as I have equipped you to do, and sent you out to do with my authority and under my provision, when they reject you, tough noogies, keep going. Move on. Go to the next town. Go where the fruit is. Go where you will not be rejected. But don't stop doing this. Keep pushing. Keep persevering. Keep doing that for which I sent you out. He doesn't say that when you aren't received, all right, well, you had your first rejection, pack it up, come home. You must have done it wrong. You must not have heard what I told you to do. No, he says, continue to do this. Continue to do that for which I sent you out, but just do it somewhere else. Go to the next place. Just as earlier in chapter six, when the Nazarenes didn't accept Christ, he went on among the villages, teaching, healing, We, as his disciples, when we are rejected, should continue being sent out. We should continue going. We should continue proclaiming. But we should be okay with doing our work somewhere else. Somewhere it may be received. Somewhere it may be listened to. And when we do that, we shake off the dust and we move on. If any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. We wash ourselves clean of everything that could keep clinging to us from the rejection that we just received. Everything that from their rejection could possibly hold us back, we let it go and we get over it. Not only do the words they said or the the things they did no longer affect us, but even the dust of that place isn't with us anymore. It's not carried by his disciples when they move on. So shake it off. And when you do that, that is a testimony against them, not against you. It doesn't mean you didn't do what you're supposed to do. It didn't, doesn't mean you didn't go where you were supposed to go. It doesn't mean you didn't do it right. It means that when you proclaim his message and his gospel and you are rejected, move on, shake off the dust, because that dust is all they've got from you. That dust is all that they received from you. You came to offer them living water, which springs unto eternal life, and rather than receiving it, they rejected you. So leave them with the dust to which they will return. Shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. We should be prepared for rejection when Christ sends us out with the knowledge that we are not any worse for this rejection. 
The only ones who are hurt by the rejection of Christ are the ones who have rejected Christ. Christ isn't hurt. His messengers are not hurt. It's only them that are hurt. And what a sad state to have a disciple come to you, preach the gospel to you, and to be left with only the dust that was on his feet. Shake it off, move on. He sends them out, giving them preparation for how to deal with their rejection. And the final way that Christ sends out his disciples in this text today is he sends them out to do his work. He sends them out to do the same work that he came to do, the final two verses. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Notice the disciples just did what he told them to do. So we've got the the first several verses telling them what to do. And then verse 12 just starts, so they went out. Christ told them what to do. They did it. They listened. They heard. They obeyed. A disciple A true disciple is obedient to his master. When Christ speaks, we listen. When Christ says to do something, we do it. That's the mark of a disciple. If when he spoke, you didn't listen and didn't do it, you can call yourself a disciple, but that's just words. There's no meaning applied to that. A true disciple is obedient. His disciples went out. There's not a period of haggling on when they will go or where they will go or how they will go. They don't negotiate with Jesus to find a different or a better ministry spot for them to go. Like, oh, Tyre, Sidon, couldn't I have gotten Capernaum? That's where the action is. They just went. They did what they were told to do. They simply go out as their master called them to do. And they go out with a simple message, repent. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They went out and proclaimed that people are sinners who should fall before God, asking them for forgiveness of their sins in the hope, in the possibility that he might have mercy on them. So that after they have fallen down, when they stand up again, they can go forth and sin no more. It's the same message of repentance that Christ had when he started his ministry. Mark 1.15, toward the beginning of the, our series in Mark, we covered this, says, this is Christ going out and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's their message. When they go, under his provision, with his authority, far and wide, in the face of rejection, What they are called to speak and say is the same message that Christ gave them, repent and believe the gospel. No wonder they get rejected, right? You walk into a town and the first thing you tell people is, hey, you're a sinner going to hell, you need to repent. Not many people want to hear that. But that's what they're called to. That's what we're called to. They went out to tell the people that there is a great and holy God who is perfect in love, perfect in justice, perfect in holiness. But they, the people listening to those words, are dirty sinners deserving of death. They cannot be in the presence of this God, of his holiness. They cannot experience his love because of their sin. When they experience his justice, 
they will receive his wrath. But if they repent, if they believe in the gospel, if they believe in this message, this person that the disciples went out to reveal to the people they were proclaiming this message to, they will receive mercy because God has sent one to redeem his people from their sins, the man Christ Jesus, the one whom his disciples represent, the one who has given them his authority as they go. Believe, repent. He has come to redeem his people. Their message is our message. Just as we go when we are sent out, we are to proclaim this exact same message. Repent and believe the gospel. There is one who has come to redeem his people from their sins. And that is applied to you by your repentance and belief in that truth. They accompanied their message with works as they went out. Verse 13, they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They accompanied their message with works because that showed not only that Christ had authority over the evil spirits, but that he had given that authority to his disciples. He gave them that same authority in verse 7. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So then 13 is the fulfillment of that. Seven, he gives them authority over the unclean spirits. Thirteen, we see that they use that authority over the unclean spirits to cast out demons. It's the same authority, the same power, the same work. He calls them out to do his work. His work of proclaiming the gospel. His work of calling sinners to repentance. His work of exercising his kingdom authority over all creation that those who heard and saw these things might come to know him, might come to be with him, to believe in him. We have been given a similar mission as his disciples in this text. Before he ascended into heaven, after returning to life from the dead, he commissioned his people. He said, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, verses that many of us have heard over and over throughout our lives, He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This sending out in Mark chapter 6 is a prefigurement of what he is going to do when he sends them out again after he has returned from the dead. When he's come back to life, he sends them out with the same message. But now he sends them out with the full knowledge, the full faith, the full hope that the one they serve is not a mere man. He is a man who has died and is alive again. That when they go and proclaim, repent and believe the gospel, they can go with the promise that just as Christ was raised, they can be raised. He sends them out now, before they have seen those things, still with that message that people should repent and believe in the gospel, in the hope that the one who is to come is going to save them from their sins. Even as he was already there, he had not completed his work. He had not finished his task. But now on our end of the death and resurrection, he has. We have the full knowledge. We have the full promise. We have the full hope. 
that Christ came, lived, died, and rose again. So you, when you live and die, can rise again. That's our message. We have a more full understanding of the gospel even than his disciples did as they were sent out. We have this same authority that's been given to us with the full promise of the one who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, that when we go, we are going as his representatives to spread his gospel, his name, his renown, his glory among the entire earth, to make disciples of all nations, every tribe, every tongue, every people group, every color, every country, every group, every church, every language, That's what we're called to. Every single person is who we are called to reach with his authority. We have been given a similar mission. We have been sent out in the same way that the disciples were sent. He loved his disciples and that is evident in how he sends them out. It's evident in how he has sent us out that he gave us his authority. He told us what to do. He told us where to do it. He said he'd be with us as we went about doing it. They're given his own authority. They're under his provision. They're supposed to go out far and wide, even in the face of rejection, to do his work that he has prepared for them. And just as he sent to them, so now he sends us. So we should go. We should take the authority that he's given us the authority he's bestowed on us through him being with us, and we should go. We should carry his word. We should go out and proclaim his message this week and every week. We should know that he will provide for us as we need it. We should send his message to every corner of the earth without fear, knowing that we're going to be rejected and yet still not being afraid. This is the work that he's given for his people to perform on his behalf. It's the work that he's commanded us to do until he returns. So as we leave today, let's do that. Let's do that this week. Let's do that every week. Let's do that in every opportunity. Proclaim the gospel. Repent and believe because there is one who can save you from your sin and give you the promise and hope of eternal life. That's our message. That's our hope. And the first step today toward obeying his commands, the first move we can make, even before we leave this room, is by gathering together in voice, in song, and proclaiming his gospel as a prefigurement to us going out and doing that throughout our lives the rest of this week. We can, right now, be obedient to what Christ has called us to do by singing. That's so simple, right? That's so easy, right? It's a song we know. It's a song I hope we like. It's a song that says the gospel strongly and clearly. So we can, right now, proclaim his message before we even leave by singing. We can proclaim how deep the Father's love is for us. Let us see this as the first step of obeying what we've been told to do. Not only this week, but every week. The first step of worship, the first step of response 
to what he has called us to do is by responding to his truth in the worship and praise of his gospel. Let's do that today. Let's be sent out by Christ for the work of glorifying him. Let's begin by singing now, but continue throughout our lives, throughout the rest of our week, by sharing the gospel with whoever we have the opportunity to do that with. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for sending us out in love, for sending us out in a way that lets us know that you care for us, that you will provide for us, that you've given us parts of your authority as you go out with us, that you're sending us to every corner of the globe, every tribe, every people. Thank you for sending us and warning us of rejection. Thank you for preparing us for how to face those fears, those heartaches, those persecutions. Thank you for preparing us and asking us to join you in your work and using us as the means through which your glory is going to reach every corner of the entire world. Thank you for giving us your work to do and making us your instruments as you do your work. Help for us to be obedient to that calling today and to every day. And let this song be our first step of obedience to what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.